Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about joy on purpose, building a culture of happiness for professional and personal success. My guests today are Rich Sheridan and James Goebel. I have the great pleasure of being at Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as part of the Positive Business Conference Roadshow and the connection to Rich Sheridan and his books and and you as co-founder of Menlo Innovations and really wanting to get into what makes Menlo so different, why you lead with a culture of joy and what makes this floor that's filled with teams of young people who have seemed enthusiastic and engaged and very much alive. So uh, we have people of all ages, although everybody who comes to take the tour often comments on how young our team is. And one of my retorts that I'll offer is, you're just not used to watching people in their 40s, 50s, or 60s smile while they're at work. And so your brain says, they don't fit there, they must be younger than that because they're actually accomplishing something. They're connected with others. And so your brain solves that problem by recategorizing. What's so interesting is you started business about 20 years ago. Yes. And you were doing um, product development software yes. uh, programming. And then you founded the company leading or creating a culture of connection and openness and authenticity, which led you both, you enriched down a path of really becoming mentors to other businesses. Sure, yes. Uh, although we're avid students of learning about other businesses as well. Yeah. And I think the two are connected. Because many of the things that we do came from something we saw somewhere else. We learn, we incorporate. And what probably fascinates people the most is they've heard many of the same stories we have. They've read many of the same books. They didn't actually try to practice and learn the skill they read about, and they've never seen it incorporated in real life. Like authenticity. Yeah. Having fun, having fun at, the, at the office. Yes. There's, and even there are many times where people are in distress. I mean, we have clients that yell. We have challenges. What's unusual in my previous experience is that you are left alone to struggle blame was assigned. Here, we share the problem and try and solve it. So you're never left on an island by yourself trying to figure out how to make it not your fault. Instead, we work together to try and figure out what the solution is. And you said something really interesting to me when we had lunch before we began recording this interview about problems. Yes. Sort of like, bring it. They're problems. Let's yes. go. 
And I think that most of us try to avoid the problem, believing it to be distress. And when you think of problem solving in the context of what you're doing here, it's use stress, it's positive stress, it's motivating stress. So I think a lot of the folks that we meet who might hear about us, they believe we have a trick. Uh, what's, what's the cute way, what's the, the, the magic thing, what's the, that will get them the kind of results they want without actually changing their behavior or being hard work? And the difference, I would argue, is the same thing we see at like Zingerman's. They stay up all night baking because most of them love it. It's yeah. what they want to do. When we build software and we struggle through it, we want to do it. We want to achieve. We want to get the outcome. It's not a trick. It's we find the folks that want to work together, and we bond with each other, and then we use tools to help us keep those relationships as functional as possible because the tools don't solve problems. People solve problems. And so if there's no problems, I'm not sure what you would be accomplishing. Well, problems are good things. High-quality problems yes. are good things. You know, when it's the problem of, of struggling to get enough to eat, not so much. Correct. But yep. when it's the, it's the struggle of uh, solving an equation or fulfilling someone's professional need through the service that you provide, that's a pretty good high-quality problem. Yes. It's, it's nice to stay higher on Maslow's hierarchy. Yes, 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 yes. Agreed. <laughs> And maybe not even reaching self-actualization, yeah. but certainly somewhere in the middle. When I walked in today, I saw um, the conclusion of a tour. I saw a dog that greeted me the minute I walked in the door, which I was pretty impressed by and touched by, because dogs don't usually just run to the door and say, huh, who's that? Who's there? Who's that? Who's there? And in the corner of the office near the restrooms, there is a plethora of baby toys. Correct. So let's start with the babies. Yeah. We recently had a major news organization bring in their cameras and talk about it. And while I'm used to it at this point, the question I ask other people is, why is this so noteworthy? And they're like, oh, because it's so different. And the reality is it's different in their experience. The whole idea that your children wouldn't be with you throughout the day while you're working is odd, right? Most of the world actually practices the opposite. The children are with the family, right? They're carried around in a sling for most of the last tens of thousands of years, right? The children are with you. So our version of normal is what we've convinced ourselves it is. And just because we're not used to something, it seems odd and different. Now, ultimately, we solved the problem of having children at work, not because we thought it was a cool idea, not because we thought it would be a great benefit. We had an employee who wanted to come back to work, and the daycare was full, and they were still on the waiting list. But we knew that Tracy really wanted to come back to work and work on some of the projects. And so the whole effort behind it was based on solving a problem, not because we thought it would be a neat thing that we could publicize in when we walk through the problems, they're small, practical problems. What happens if the baby cries? Well, what would mom do when the baby cries at home? You would comfort the baby. What if the baby needs to sleep? Well, we need a place where the baby can sleep. What if the baby's done with being at work? Well, if the baby was done with whatever it was, somebody might call mom and mom might have to come home anyway. So mom and the baby go home. What was the alternative? It, 
it didn't really dramatically change other than the fact that, well, bring in the baby, let's see if it works. And my guess, oh, well, I know it's worked because I, because I've. We're now, yeah. almost 30 babies have come through. 30 babies in, but it works also on the team members. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because it's so soothing. I mean, holding a baby releases oxytocin, it yes. reduces stress. And you also know why you're working, right? And when you have a colleague, if you're not well bonded with them and they have to go because their child's sick, I've been in lots of situations where you can see people questioning, are they getting away with something? And if you know the baby, everybody on the team is absolutely adamant, go take care of your baby, we'll cover for you because they, they have a relationship with the baby and they know that the mother is being authentic because they also know the mother now. If a mother trusts you to hold their baby, you build a connection. And the dads, too. Oh, absolutely. There are dads bringing their babies. So the beautiful thing <laughs> is that we describe having a mother's room, and part of that was nursing the babies early on. And I felt somewhat embarrassed by my own prejudices instead of normal when a dad finally brought a baby to work, an infant, and thought, well, yeah, why not? Of course. And so that has become equally normal as a mother bringing a baby. Yeah. So... Tapping back into the whole idea of this culture of joy in, in the workplace, what you're doing here is not crazy or different. It's perceived, <laughs> it's, it's, it's perceived as crazy and different. It's perceived as crazy and different because, in my mind, most people have experienced the opposite. And if they've only experienced the opposite, that must be the way it is and the stories they've been told. One of the illustrations I'll provide to people, you know, I'll enhance it to say, okay, imagine you're going to a barn raising and there's all these farmers. Now in my life, I've not done that, but I've done similar things, right? Where you've come together as a community and you're helping one member of the community, right? My brothers all come together and we help one of them move. But again, go back to the barn raising. You're lifting these heavy timbers, you're putting things in the ground and you might find two farmers who absolutely hate each other because your sheep keep eating my grass and your cow keeps doing X. But when they're accomplishing something big together, they might even do something crazy like hug before they realize, oh, wait, I hate you. Yeah. Right? And so humans, in my mind, want to know that their effort matters. They want to accomplish something. And if you feel that your effort is accomplishing something, most people actually work hard because it's an outcome. Well, I think we want to do our best by yes. nature. Most of us are out to do the very best that we can with the tools and resources that we have available to us. So a lot of companies, when they come take the tour, are touched, they're, they're intrigued. And a common question I'll be asked is, how do you keep your team engaged? And for me, it's sort of a nonsensical question, having worked in an environment that I would no longer want to go back to. My answer is we don't keep them engaged. Most humans keep themselves engaged. In other organizations I've been in, we beat it out of them, mm. right? Otherwise, if you're not systematically beating it out of people, then something's wrong with your hiring process because most people, when they show up for day one of work, are excited to be there. They're thrilled. They're eager. They're interested. They're sponges, but they show up and the project we hired them for is not ready. There's no computer. We start grinding them down with the bureaucracy, and pretty soon we're like, why did we hire this person? They're not energetic, but 
in the vast majority of cases, they were when we hired them. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a problem on their end. Talk a little bit about HR, because this, this came up in our earlier discussion. Yes. Menlo Innovations has a very unique HR department. So <laughs> everybody participates in HR. Yeah. And again, in my mind, it makes sense. So if you have difficulty between two employees, in my old world, you might then refer them to HR and they would go get counseled by people who are not part of their working community. So it feels like you've been sent to the principal's office. Everybody else who works with them now sort of withdraws a little bit or goes, oh, good, we don't have to deal with the people problems. But it's people collaborating that solve problems. And so here, if people aren't getting along, it's their peers who are helping them. It's their peers that are deciding if they're succeeding. It's their peers that give them reviews and decide if it's time to move them up the scale. Why? Because they're doing work together. And so they actually know each other's work. They know which people help each other. They know who helps make them more productive. And so who would you like to keep on the team the longest? Well, presumably the people who help you accomplish more and, and, and succeed. Yeah. And HR is often you know, down the hall. Down the hall. Somewhere or over there. Across the parking lot in, <laughs> yes. in rooms we never see. And they have a completely different culture from us. And when they talk... To us, if we're engineers, what they say doesn't seem to make sense and they don't seem to get us. What if you talk to other engineers? We're going to take a pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We are back talking about joy on purpose, building a culture of happiness for professional and personal success. Let's get back to the conversation. No, we're not saying that there's no reason for people to be professionally skilled in HR, and we will often reach out to them and have them help us, but we don't want them to take the problem over, leaving us to abdicate on the relationship issues, on the human resource issues. We need to be able to incorporate that into how we function together as a team. Because it is that interaction in the HR areas yes. of, the, of the team that helps problem solve in the technical side as Absolutely, well. Absolutely. because the, the skill set. And it's not only the skill set, but when you trust somebody, when you know they really have your back, you're willing to bring up dumb ideas and crazy ideas and brainstorming that you wouldn't otherwise that could lead to the solution. Right? I've seen somebody show up at work clearly distressed. Their teammates ask them what's wrong and it'd be a, a problem at home. Maybe it's a social interaction they've had with somebody completely unassociated with, with the office and their peers kind of dig in and realize you're not going to be useful today, right? That you've had such an emotionally devastating experience. Maybe it's your first breakup of a, of a major breakup with somebody you've had a relationship, right? You're going to be a scarecrow walking around. Team members here have actually taken a vacation day to take that person home and just be with them. Wow. Right? We'll go play video games or we'll go watch a movie just to help you get through this day. And they burn one of their own vacation days to make that happen. What does that do to build a team? A lot. 
very, very human, you know, and really speaks to the heart of joy, right? Yes. That when you see the, the humanness in the other person, because you can have that kind of kindness and generosity of spirit for yourself, know that you're valued. I think that is part of what makes this scenario here unique. And I want to sort of paint the picture Absolutely. because this is a this is a, a listening event here. Menlo Innovations is in a basement, essentially. Oh, it is a basement. A yeah. basement of a parking garage. A, ba- a basement of a parking garage. And you walk in here, and it feels like it's a living, creative laboratory. It doesn't feel like it's the basement. So often, people walk into our space, and they're astounded by how noisy it is. So it sounds like a restaurant during the lunch hour. In part because teams are communicating with each other. So instead of sending email back and forth, we use high-speed voice technology. We talk to each other. <laughs> and so you hear that energy throughout the space yeah. is people are talking to each other about their projects, sharing things. And most folks who come are really tempted to assume, well, wait, wouldn't it be more efficient if they were all quietly working in little corners typing? But anywhere else we go and we watch the intellectual work that's being done on a computer, people are not typing at their fastest typing speed. The challenge of intellectual work is one of communication and shared understanding, not one of how fast we type. You know, this is not rocket science. Nope. And yet it is so sophisticated. The subtleties of what you're describing really has very little to do about with the work itself. Correct. This is about people. And... Often when folks come take a tour, and we do a lot of tours, what they see are all the artifacts. They see the index cards on the wall. They see folded paper on tables. They see sticky notes everywhere. They see the kinds of boards that we built. Even the aluminum tables that we have so that we can easily move them and and reconfigure the space. And they assume that that's the solution because they could just buy that and install it. The reality is... We solve problems by humans working with each other. Our processes and our tools simply make it obvious when there are problems, when we're not succeeding. But the tools themselves don't solve the problem. And there's a lot of storytelling going on. Humans remember stories. If you read a technical documentation, some of us are gifted, not me, to memorize the entire technical documentation (laughs) and, and be able to go refer. But most human beings prefer to ingest information in a story. That would explain why when we pay to go to movies on the weekend, very few of them are PowerPoint presentations. Yes, let's talk about that PowerPoint presentation because I am not a fan of the PowerPoint. I I will very rarely use one in my own presentation. It's only if I'm doing a peer presentation in a psychology conference. There you go. And even then, not so often because they're boring. Yes, If you're relying on the slides to keep somebody engaged, you know something's wrong, right? What's the story? What's the connectedness to other humans? And you can use a PowerPoint to back that up, but a PowerPoint cannot provide the story, the purpose, the reason for why you want to do stuff. And all too often, what a PowerPoint does is talk about the what or some data without connectedness to the why. How does... The way in which you work here permeate other areas of your life. So imagine you're an introverted engineer and not always good at communicating, which I know well from 
being me. <laughs> and many of the folks here, matter of fact, the vast majority are introverts and maybe have not practiced all the social skills that they would want. And yet, we go home and we choose to live with other humans. You learn skills through repetition and practice. In our environment, you are practicing having effective communication all day long, every day. And you get better at it. Even the introverts, because an introvert still wants to talk. They just don't want to flit from conversation to conversation and talk about the weather, right? Or have idle chat. But most introverts will dive very deeply if they're talking to somebody else who has the same interest on something that has substance and they'll want to dive. Well, here, you're working with other people on a task. There is a common purpose, so there's a reason to dive in, which means you're now practicing your communication skills all day long. And that carries over into the rest of your life. We've actually had employees come back to the office after they had quit. And they thank us for having worked this way because it has positively impacted their marriage. I can see it. I mean, you know, for a room full of air quote introverts, I'm watching these teams work and there's the body language is very connected. You know, yes. there's like eye contact, physically leaning into the conversations. I'm looking right here and watching these two right outside the glass doors. And I'm like, these are switched on people. They're turned on to life. Yep. And that work-life balance, it, there's a bleed. It's congruent. I think that when people compare extroverts and introverts, there are a lot of assumptions. And my own assessment, which is not very scientific, is extroverts get a lot more practice at making connections mm -hmm. because of their wiring. And so over the course of 20 or 30 years, you compare those opportunities to practice compared to many introverts. And then the assumption is, oh, introverts aren't very good at connection, which is not anything not, to do with being introverted true. or extroverted. Yeah. Right? And so what's changed here for most of the introverts is the amount of practice they, they get on a skill that applies equally to both, both sets of wiring. And improvement in emotional and social intelligence across yes. the board in all, in all areas. Likewise, the extroverts who work here, as we <laughs> do have some, often note that they've now built additional skills on staying focused and diving deeper rather than moving from one conversation to the next. And probably uh, deeper listening. Yes, because it has to happen in order for us to function well. And if not, you're going to get coached on it by your peers. Would you say that... The teams here self-regulate? So the definition of team is probably the key thing. So everybody here works in a pair. So you and your partner will have to self-regulate and figure out each other's work style because not everybody's identical. If you and your pair partner are having challenges, it is up to everybody else near you at the same table to pay attention and to help. And one of the weird things that we do is you don't have your own table, your own desk. It's much like a manufacturing facility. A project has tables and computers. So if you're going to go work on a project, you go sit at those tables. This means the people who are seated nearest to you have the greatest common investment of, we need you to be productive this week because you're working on the same project that we are. As opposed to an organization where somebody's not getting along, it's obvious to everybody, and they put in their headphones and turn away because that person's outcomes are not tied to what I'm supposed to be getting done. 
And no corner offices here. There are no corner offices. Corner conference room. But. There's a conference room, <laughs> but everybody sits out in the open. Everybody moves around from project to project as needed. And as a fun fact, both Rich and I sit out in the middle of the space wherever the team has put us. So I might go off to meet with a client or go off to a conference and come back and find that my space to sit in has moved and people will laugh about it. And then ultimately the game is I will either need somebody to coach me or I'll have to guess, why did they move me over here? Am I trying to help this project more? Or in the case of some uh, seating arrangements in the past, oh, look, they've, rich, they've moved Rich and I next to each other. So maybe they've detected that we're not fully on the same page and need to spend more time together. But the team will make those decisions and simply move us to where they think we're needed. Imagine if more companies worked like this, what would happen? I think that it would be eye-opening for many people, not only for the executives who got moved, but probably for the people who are now seated next to the executives hearing what the executives are doing all day. Yeah, because there's the belief, well, what, what do they do? Yes. yes. There are misnomers <laughs> on both sides. What do they do all day? Whereas here, you're seated next to people. You hear what's going on. We change seats. You might end up holding somebody's baby. Or the day where Rich was on a sales call holding somebody's baby and the baby started crying and the person on the other end of the phone was surprised that Rich was working at home. And he had to point out, no, I'm not working at home. Oh, you bring your baby to the office. He's like, well, kind of, but it's not my baby. You know, and how many illusions and assumptions were shattered in that person's head just in that couple of sentences? It's interesting because I work a lot in a virtual environment. Yes. The team I work with is scattered all over the world, and we do the, the video stuff that, that you do where you're available constantly. Yes. And the signs of life in the background, the rhythm of life, much like we're hearing here, is very comforting. Like To yes. know that that other person has a, a crying baby or a barking dog or there's a siren on the streets of Caracas. We have a team member there. So we have. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing our conversation about joy on purpose, building a culture of happiness for professional and personal success. Let's get back to the conversation. When people often come here because they're already making assumptions or their own experiences are all they can compare, the assumption is our engineers could not work in this. It's too noisy. It needs to be library quiet. That's how I think the best. Of course, I also point out that many of those people who claim that they need library science, library quiet go to restaurants and eat with friends just fine there where there's the same level of noise. One of the strangest phenomenon at Menlo is if the rhythm just happens to hit silence all at the same time. Everybody will look up as if something's wrong, <laughs> look at everybody else, realize, okay, the building's not on fire, there's not something dangerous that's going on, it was just a random occurrence, and they'll all laugh and go back to work and the noise will come right back up. Everybody took a breath at the yep. same time. Absolutely. Which is, speaks to the rhythm, I think. That the, that the company takes on, yes. you know, allowing employees to flow 
rather than dictating how they should move about? So we have both rhythms that are set, right? So many people who come to visit think Menlo is utter chaos, or they think that we are totally micromanaging, or for some people, they hold both thoughts in their head at the same time and their brains explode. And so there are a lot of rules that seem odd to outsiders. So Give us a couple of examples. You will always work in a pair when you're working on client work. You work on the tasks as they are assigned in the project plan and currently posted up on the wall. So you work on the highest priority thing, and when that's done, you work on the next highest priority thing. So we tell you the order in which you're going to work on things. And that's public. That's it's public. That is Every, on everybody the walls. can see. Everybody can see. Including customers. Business. <laughs> yeah. We also tell you which project you're going to be on. So if you're only 20% on this project and 40% on this project, we tell you which days you're going to work on those projects so that we can align. Let's assume that there's five different people, or in our world, six who are only working on a project one day a week. Well, we make sure that they're all working on it the same day so that they're not leaving emails for each other. They all can coordinate. So we declare. It'll be Monday. It's Tuesday. And so, again, it's some form of micromanagement. On the other hand, people see the utter chaos because people are free to trade tasks or move people around. They don't need to go to their bosses because their boss is everybody else on the team. And so what it is is what I would like to describe as my son playing soccer with kids he's never met. The soccer rule book, it's relatively thick, but you can get a whole bunch of kids together and have the basic structure of the rules. They will have to invent new rules because there's no soccer goals, there's no out of bounds. So that road's out of bounds, that, that light post is the goal. They all agree on it, and then they can start getting the work done, which is playing soccer. So you have to have enough rules that everybody else can predict how everybody else will behave and how they will interpret the rules. And if you have enough structure like that, then people can coordinate. Often we have more rules than anybody can possibly interpret and nobody knows how anybody else is going to behave because nobody knows the same set of rules. You know, in the course of this conversation, we have not mentioned software development or product development at all. Yes. This this conversation has been completely devoted to human software. So we build software for other companies. That's the business we're in. Out of all the tours that come, though, only about half of those are software teams. We have hospital administration teams. We have manufacturing teams. We have technical writing teams. All sorts of different roles. The people who are most likely to take away the things that we do are the non-programmers. And I have many guesses as to why that is, but... Often for many of the other teams that are not as technical, what they see is a process they can understand and they can actually adopt because, again, it's mostly paper-based and behavior-based. Whereas a lot of engineers believe the more technology we weave into our process, the better the process must be. So many of the software teams that come benchmark us decide this won't work. Interesting. And what about trust? Transparency we mentioned, but the element of trust... So I think transparency certainly helps trust. Also, when you work next to people side by side, and every week we rotate who you are working with, so you build different relationships. And if you've built enough relationships and you sit next to somebody all day long, you eventually see where they are flawed. And if you see those flaws, so one of my challenges, I can't remember people's names. This is a bit awkward for a COO, right? But my team knows that, and so they laugh when there's a new team member and I can't remember their name, and they 
poke out that, well, he can't remember your name, and they give that person just a moment uh, to panic, like, oh, they must not be important, and they'll point out, oh, I've been here 15 years. He'll, he'll forget my name from time to time. It's not a big deal. Or if we're sitting with a customer, they'll recognize now the pause in my conversation, and they'll just fill in and gracefully help me. Well, trust is a place where you are vulnerable and share your weaknesses and share your strengths with each other. But you have to be able to show where you're failing. And what's interesting is this company is run by two men. Sure. And yet the energy, the, the collaborative spirit and the energy behind what drives Menlo, some would say is a very feminine kind of energy. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the emotional side. It's the soft side. It's people. Yeah. And I will push back on your statement. It was founded and. Rich and I certainly have a lead, but we don't run the company. It's run by the team. And one of the values that we look for is cognitive diversity and emotional intelligence. And so everybody who ends up working here has to build and grow those capacities, which would often be described as being feminine traits. (laughs) Look at Rich is giving us the, come on in. I've heard of this rich guy. Yeah, come on in. You want to join the conversation? We can plug in another mic. Okay. We're talking about sort of the the, the soft skills. The soft skills, you know, the that soft would be side. Two, two men have co-founded a company that is really based on the heart. You know, mm-hmm. more feminine energy. If one were to really analyze the energy, you know, and I'm as a, as a woman that comes in and views this, I'm like, damn, this. We need to bottle this and send it across the planet. We see a lot of other organizations that marvel as a technical company because we can attract women. Yeah. And part of the challenge that they have is they've built a boys club and wonder why women don't want to work there. Yeah, the, 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 this, there's a climate of, of trust. It's embedded in your process here. It's critical. And, and I, I feel it just walking in. Matter of fact, I would say that you could take away all of our processes and all of our tools, and if you maintain that trust in the connection between the humans, they will succeed using whatever process we give them. However, if the process gets in the way of their relationships, over time those relationships will slowly degrade, as will their performance. So the goal of the tools is to help improve and help them have the opportunities to grow those relationships that they will rely on while they're making solutions work. And that is that that climate which breeds creativity. Yes. I trust you. If we trust each other and even trust that even if there's failure and we mess up, that it doesn't change the way that I feel about you. Creativity requires that trust. I think most people, when they think of creativity, are looking for the genius moment that will come up with the perfect idea. <laughs> the reality is most creativity comes from a mistake. And so if we're willing to make mistakes in front of each other, that gives us more fodder to build upon. But if we all won't speak about something until we think we have the right answer, we will not get a chance to explore the odd, inappropriate answers that people will give each other and lead to those aha moments of, hey, if we think completely in a different direction or use lateral thinking because it was inappropriate, that's how you get to something that's new and different. When I had gone to the restroom, I had uh, there's a sign in there. It's need something. We've got your back. Yep. Right, and it, it, it's whatever. But, but it struck me that this is the core of the organization. So 
I have a story in my head about who made that. Yes? It's Victoria. Yes. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense because her father was recently here on a sales call asking whether or not they should use us. Now, I believe his answer is yes, but he was trying to convince some colleagues. And he basically said, look, I hear all these kinds of stories everywhere I go. What's different here is that my daughter's a spy and comes home and tells me all the stories <laughs> are true, that this is really who they are every moment of every day. And so when I saw that sign appear and I thought it had been Victoria, I also knew it was very authentic, that she really was saying, no, if you forgot something, let's just make sure it's here so that you can get back to work and solve the problems that we solve. It put a, put a smile on my face when yeah. I saw that. I actually get a smile every time I see that sign, too, because it is just so memorable. It really yeah. is. I mean, it, first of all, that there's a sign at all that tells you what's inside the cabinet just in case you need it. <laughs> uh, just fun. Um, and that it was done by uh, essentially a summer intern who felt... I'm pretty sure we could ask her. You, she might be one of those you interview tomorrow. Uh, she would be amazing. Uh, but I don't think anybody told her to do it, and I don't think she has permission. She just somehow quickly embodied the culture of Menlo, wanted to be a little playful, put that up there, and it just works. There's no committee on creativity. And if I try to imagine having done that at a previous Fortune 1000 firm, the barriers that would have been put in my way as a director level in that organization, how much effort I would have had to put forward. And here's an intern who just goes and does it. Well, first of all, you have a sort of the corporate aesthetics and did that pass marketing and, and design, yep. right? Absolutely. <laughs> but it also says, open me in little, mm -hmm. in little type. You know, the invitation is there, and I think that's probably what is everywhere here. The encouragement to, you know, open the door, come in, and experience and explore. And ultimately, she didn't do that, whether it was in collaboration with others or on her own, ultimately by herself, because being in the open space, others are going to see what you're doing, and they're going to give you feedback as you go, like, oh, we, we don't do that, or, oh, do you need help? So it's very hard to do something all by yourself here. Do we really do life all by ourselves? No. Ever. Ever. Well, let's put it this way. When we try, we usually get in big trouble. Yeah. I mean, we might go for a run by ourselves. We might, we might do those kinds of activities, solo activities. But ultimately, we're hardwired for this connection business. We're hardwired. So I laugh because uh, in a quest to lower my blood pressure, I'm supposed to run more often. And even if I go run by myself... Right, My run improves if somebody else passes me at just a slightly faster pace. Somebody I don't know, now all of a sudden I'll be pulled along, right? And it's a social connection, albeit very weak. But it's important to my run at that point. Yeah. yeah I think we are hardwired to be in community with one another. Yeah. I think it's just a natural part of being human. Um, and unfortunately, most of our workplaces have actually tended to force us apart. And if you think of even the most modern workplaces, there's a saying, you can work anytime you want and you can work from anywhere you want. You can work from home, you can work from the coffee shop. We're actually almost fomenting this lack of connectedness. And then people say, well, that's why we have Slack, that's why we have this technology, that's why we have that technology. Sorry, I've yet to see those electronic technologies replace what you see here.
We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. talk about building a culture of happiness for professional and personal success. I like calling it joy on purpose. Let's get back to the discussion. I agree. I was just having this conversation yesterday about the phone, that for many people, the phone has become obsolete, like mm-hmm. truly having a phone call, right? We use the devices to communicate, and yet there is no replacement for that kind of connectivity. You know, you right. really want to get somebody's attention. If they're not in, in your space, you have to call. You have to have some human contact. And I think that um, that's become diffuse as technology has become, you know, better and bigger and brighter and more accessible. Slack doesn't do a very good job of carrying tone, of carrying timber in the voice, yeah. of having the eyebrows express what's going on. Even if you add little icons and emojis and so forth, <laughs> right? Humans are very expressive throughout an entire sentence. Yeah. You ever tried to fight on a text? It doesn't work well. No. It works. Horrible. Yeah. Right. It usually goes sideways. Yeah. Or worse, one of you thinks you're fighting and the other one doesn't. Right. Like I know that attitude. Yes. What attitude? Yeah. I just yeah. wrote and words. Yes. <laughs> And if, you, if you've ever had a text argument or conflict and then later meet with the person to talk and they read their text to you, their tone is usually, at least my experience is, so pleasant. Ah. All of the words that I was amplifying, they're downplaying. Now, I don't know if they actually meant it that way now or not, or they're sort of playing the the game of, well, I can read this in any tone I want because now we're together. And if you were upset by it, let me prove to you that you shouldn't have been because listen to the way I read this text. Does that sound upset to you? (laughs) When I was a director at a large company, I would swear I spent 20% of my time putting out fires that were accidentally lit by somebody misinterpreting an email. Which in this system, in the way that you work here, it avoids that. Well, we still have fights, and there's still hurt feelings, but it's usually not because of a complete misinterpretation. Of an email. Right. Well, certainly not from an email, typically, because teams don't actually keep email open. So if we send somebody an email, we need to go tap them on the shoulder and ask them to open it. We had a conversation earlier about 
sort of the goal of the company and the, the notion of does one cash out and move on to something else and, and, and purpose? Is this I mean, a bona fide offer that we're about to get? No, yeah. not oh, at okay. all. No, I mean, I, I couldn't, listen, I could barely operate this equipment, let alone do what you do out there. I think a lot of people look at what we do and think it's clever and think that it's a shortcut and that if this is doing really well, that, that Rich and I, as the founders, should be able to walk away with a lot of money. And I don't look at this as a lottery ticket. Yeah. The reason we built this is because we wanted to build it. And the need for revenue is in order to sustain it and continue to grow it. It's not the other way around that if we just built this, all of a sudden it would provide riches. So the motivation is by a noble purpose. It's certainly for a purpose. I guess it would be left up, up to various people as to whether it's noble. But from our standpoint, because we want purpose in our work, we have chosen not to work with certain clients because we couldn't understand the value of the project they proposed. Uh, one that comes to mind is somebody who wanted us to help build software that would gather people together to buy lottery tickets so that they could win a lot of money and quit their jobs. And while it's a fun fantasy, it wasn't clear how this was going to add to the value of the community. We could quickly paint a picture in that particular case that what they were attempting to accomplish would create divisiveness inside of work teams who were pooling their money to buy lottery tickets. And our view was, we don't want to create that kind of pain in the world. And so we said, we're not the right team for you. We didn't, you know, we weren't trying to tell them it was a bad idea or anything. Like they were just like, not us. We're not going to help create something we don't believe in. And so I think there is some element of purposefulness and nobility in that. Um, ultimately, you know, there's part of this is very selfish for James and I. We built a place we want to go to work every day. There just yes. happens to be another 60 people who want to tag along with us, which is really convenient given how much effort we need to do what we do. But we just didn't want to torture ourselves or them with some stupid processes. We wanted to make new and different mistakes, not the same ones we already knew we screwed up. But I think that that ties into the purpose in that, in the, yes, you, you do what you do because it pleases you. You feel most alive and creative mm -hmm. when you're doing it. And therefore, that is that is purpose. And you're making a contribution. You're helping support a community of people through the work that you do. I think it's a win-win. And that idea of, of, of selling out and taking the, the, the nest of golden eggs. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to fantasize about. If it, and, and there's always somebody who wants to talk to us about franchising or would we sell the business. The reality is if I actually stop and try and imagine what does the next day look like, it's hard to imagine. There's not a clear outcome. And we've also talked to enough entrepreneurs who've been through that who you could see clearly lamented. They now had a pile of cash and their purpose was missing. And then the joy goes. Yes. Well, and you know, a lot of people have asked us, why don't you start Menlo in other places? Build a Menlo in Chicago and Silicon Valley and Europe somewhere. In some ways we have. We just haven't monetized them. All these thousands of people who come here every year to see us and learn from us and take ideas back and create their version of a joyful company, our view is awesome. Yeah. 
there's one version of the world will look at us and say, gosh, you guys are leaving money on the table. You should take a should take a small piece of this. You should have a joy licensing fee that you allocate <laughs> uh, or something like that. It's like it's just not interesting. Well, it would also kind of run against our values because if we do the licensing, then we have to come to terms, which means we have to pre-prescribe all of the rules. And all of a sudden, we're writing that giant, thick manual, manual. of rules. <laughs> yes. And we have to know them all up front in order to drive people's behavior. And you can't know it. Part, no. you know, part of the beauty of an organization like this is that you're sort of, what is it, learning to fly as you build the plane yes. kind of thing? Yep. You know, well, there's a group in Poland right now that's trying to build their version of memo. We're supporting them in every way we can. They've come here taking classes from us. They've met up with some of our former interns that uh, now live in Poland and remember fondly their time here. I don't know if they win or they lose. It'll largely be on them to do that. But what I do know is that we make our ideas, our work practices, our processes freely available to them so that they can try it for themselves. And ultimately, here's what James and I know about what we've created here. This is really hard work. There's nothing about this that's easy. It might look easy because it's all working and functioning, but every day this is, this is work. It's just work we enjoy, so it doesn't look like the tradition of hard work where we go home at night and we're tired and we can't sleep at night because we're tossing and turning about some political problem in the office or something like that. We probably both sleep pretty well, uh, but it's because we worked hard all day and we did what we think was the right thing to do. Sometimes we screw up and we recover the next day, hopefully. But or somebody helps us recover. Yeah. So you're not afraid to ask for help? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So one of the interesting aspects of Menlo, I do believe that we ask for help more than others. And if Rich and I don't ask for help, others will note the behavior more than what we told them to do, right? There's signs on the wall that say it's important to say, I don't know. And people have to see us do it. But more importantly, the way the environment is set up, help will come find you. Because we all have some measure of pride. We all don't recognize when we're stuck. Having a pair partner, having others sitting around you, it's more likely somebody's going to ask, hey, do you need help, than for you to say, I need help because I'm stuck. Often people may have a technical question or need some small thing from somebody else, and they won't think anything of asking of it. But if we're really stuck and not sure where to go, it's not always clear to us. right? Yeah. And if we have a strong enough relationship that others can then say, hey, do you need help? Because in a lot of cultures, that would be offensive. Yeah. Well, pride. Yes. Do you ask each other for help? Yes. You never helped me with my golf game. Well, I, I got you. I got you. I introduced you to my golf instructor. That's true. And then she unfortunately improved your game. I'm, I'm, I've been meaning <laughs> to talk to her about it's that. that chipping thing. Yes. Um, yeah. No. I mean, the essence of our relationship was helping one another. That's how we came together. Um, and, uh, you know, probably in the early years of Menlo, a whole bunch of, let's walk 16 blocks around Ann Arbor and have, help each other work through a challenge one or the other of us was having. In so, so I can tell you ways in which we are very different or very much the same, right? And yet we're the same people. And my favorite description of how we're different is team members who are concerned about the future. 
will choose to come talk to Rich if they want the optimistic version. Or if they want the pessimistic version, they'll come to me. And sometimes they'll use both to triangulate. But at the same time, they know that we're talking about the same thing because the future's fuzzy. And they're sort of exploring the boundaries of that fuzziness, but they also know that we will correlate with each other and that we are on the same page. The answers aren't identical. And, and that's one of the ways that we help each other is that we are not wired exactly the same. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. It would be boring or be maybe very... torturous to have to be with another one of me. <laughs> to, to work with yourself and work with your own reflection. That would be scary for me. But I even know the team sometimes senses he and I aren't spending enough time together. And they will literally move our tables and put them there. You just said that a few minutes ago. We were talking about that. It's true. I mean, they watch us. They want to make sure we're connected. I know, because Carol works here. She'll, you know, if we're struggling with something, she'll have you talked to James about that. This is my wife. So Your wife works with you? Yeah, yet? she's sitting right over there. Uh, she doesn't work with him so much as yes, she, she works, works with, with me. Yeah, you, mentioned, you did mention that earlier. Yes. And so... Um, but, you know, she'll, she'll even ask me just simple structural questions. Are you spending enough time with James? Because we get pulled in different directions for different reasons. Yeah. I'm off writing books, speaking around the world, that sort of thing. He's getting much more deeply involved in client work than I do. And uh, so we get pulled apart. And if we go golfing together, we're pulled apart because one's going to hit it over in the trees and the other one's going to hit it in the pond. So we only meet each other at the tees. But, you know. <laughs> You're generally speaking always in the fairway. That would be neat. Not the right fairway. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> That's right. A fairway. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa cypress Cayman and my guests today, Rich Sheridan and James Goebel, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay joyful. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.